the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. Money is a form of communication that goes back to the beginning of history, but now it's changing fast. New stores of value arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. We now make payments with our phones, not with notes and coins. But as well as generating riches for some, the new world of cryptocurrency is full of scams. And there are downsides to payments becoming faster, cheaper and digital. Anyone reliant on cash is at risk of being excluded from the new system. Digital money is easily traceable. So who gets to monitor what we spend? What is the role of governments and central banks in this new world? And what about the big tech firms like Google, Apple, Facebook and the Chinese tech giants who are moving quickly into money? Our podcast takes a big picture look at all these trends and at their impact on society. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and culture with it. Each episode of the podcast, we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to us, you can stay up to date with what's going on in this crucial area. If you enjoy this New Money Review podcast, why not stay in touch with our future releases? You can subscribe at iTunes, Spotify or your usual podcast provider. And if you enjoy this episode, please share it. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Dan Ory, who is Professor of Law at Cornell University, where he specializes in corporate law and financial regulation. You start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work. Uh, sure. So I am a professor of law at Cornell Law School, where I teach uh, business law subjects mostly related to uh, the law and regulation of financial markets and institutions. Uh, but also of central banks and uh, international finance organizations. Okay, great. Um, this week, uh, there was a, the issue of the widely uh, awaited report on stable coins by the President's Working Group on Financial Markets, the FDIC, and the Office of the Controller of the Currency. You were one of the named experts in the report. Did it meet your expectations? Uh, well, I'm not sure I had uh, expectations. So I provided input um, uh, to several members of the, the president's working group, uh, really uh, sort of driven by my own research in this area. Uh, while I have uh, yet to provide my feedback uh, to uh, the Treasury Department on this, I think it's fair to say that uh, my own uh, views and uh, my own sense of the opportunities that could come from new legislation here were different than the vision uh, that the president's working group ultimately went with. Okay, but in, in July you did, you you wrote um, that the you know your recommendation was that the OCC should recommend to Congress that stable coins should back their liabilities one-to-one with bank deposits, and that's essentially what the president's working group report said, as far as I understand. Uh, actually, I. I uh, not with bank deposits. Okay. Um, uh, that it should be backed one to one with uh, Federal Reserve balances. With reserves, yeah. Sorry. Right. And that's a huge difference from my perspective. Okay. Uh, okay. That actually separates out uh, the stablecoin market from the banking system. Yeah. Uh, limits uh, the reliance of uh, stablecoin issuers on the conventional banking system and the potential risks, uh, yeah. both operationally and. Uh, in terms of uh, potential balance sheet risks to banks uh, yeah. from potential issues. Okay. Um, now, I've had, had a look at your areas of research, and a lot of your um, published papers focus on topics like shadow banking, the shadow payment system, 
you know, what is good money? What is bad money? What, what, what led you to uh, focus on this area in particular? Sure. So I, uh, I guess the short answer to that question is uh, this was always where I worked uh, when I was a practicing lawyer and then a finance professional. Uh, so I suppose in some sense, uh, I stuck with my uh, however small comparative advantage. I, in another sense, I was always deeply frustrated uh, with the dichotomy between uh, the lit world of securities law and the dark world of banking, uh, just in terms of the informational dynamics. Uh, and what I was seeing in markets when I was in them was that actually this basic dichotomy doesn't represent a lot of what's happening, uh, whether that be uh, uh, elements of the pre-crisis shadow banking system, uh, some of the post-crisis uh, evolutions in terms of uh, fintech, non-bank payment systems uh, and the like. And that understanding the challenges of this mix between light and dark, between securities and banking, uh, was a missing piece of the puzzle in the policymaking world. Uh, and uh, I could, you know, help fill that. And I should say, we see this in the stablecoin report, right? So rather than acknowledging the complexity of the world, um, we've made, uh, or at least uh, the President's Working Group recommends, that we choose one or the other. Uh, yeah. And specifically, they want Congress to choose the dark banking world um, uh, while letting the lit um, uh, CFTC and SEC world govern uh, these institutions until that time. And, you know, the common theme of my research is that there's a huge and growing middle ground here where adopting one or the other is going to lead to, I think, poor public policy. Right. So, um if we could go back to the period before the 2008 financial crisis, could, sure. you, could you give could you give one or two examples of where that clash or that tension um, led policymakers to get it wrong? Yeah, so I think uh, rules around uh, structured finance are particularly good there, and I think we got them wrong in in both directions. Uh, we got them wrong on the banking side uh, because bank capital requirements effectively created a uh, a prompt, a stimulus uh, to structured finance. And we got it wrong on uh, the securities law side because we were slow in catching up uh, to the need to provide better disclosure, better consumer protection, uh, and perhaps rethink how we use things like credit rating agencies um, uh, in connection with structured finance uh, to protect investors. And so... There's two ways you can look at this. One, we got the policy wrong, but I think the more fundamental issue uh, there was that uh, there was nobody on the beat. Um, securities regulators were viewing uh, uh, their traditional jurisdiction uh, and looking to, to apply their existing tools. Uh, banking regulators uh, had a view that saw securitization as good for bank balance sheets, right? Being able to shift lift off, off bank balance sheets uh, and um, you know, uh, distribute it more uh, uh, atomistically uh, within yeah. the financial system. Uh, both of the views were ultimately wrong. Um, neither of the views individually uh, could ever have been right. Uh, and so in that respect, um, you know, my advocating for more holistic uh, approaches to regulation really comes from case studies like this, where it, it just seems that this is um, the path dependencies associated with our uh, existing regulatory architecture 
and the tools and perspectives that regulators bring uh, are not particularly well suited to what modern finance looks like. How can any regulator ever get a holistic view of what's going on? Because if we go back to 2007, 2008, there were you know, a number of um, components to you know, what went wrong. There was a, you know, the, the, the structured finance market. There was an insurance company at the, at the center of the a lot of you know underwriting a lot of the the, the liabilities of of, uh, of that market. Then you know there was repo. There were money market funds. There were all, all all kinds of entities were involved and activities were involved. And how could anybody have ever you know got hold of the whole thing? Sure. So and it's a fair question. Uh, some of my earliest work was pointing out that the United States and the UK, so a very fragmented regulatory architecture as it was in the US and a completely consolidated architecture with the previous FSA, had the exact same policy uh, yeah. uh, policies around certain aspects of the shadow banking system. Uh, mm. So it's not like uh, this is easy, right? It's not like we can just fix this with institutional structures. That said, um, being alive to the possibility that this sort of thing can happen and organizing the processes by which information is collected and whom it's shared with within the financial system uh, can help. Uh, because there were people that were able to piece this all together, right? It's just that A, most of them weren't within the regulatory community, and B, they weren't listened to. Um, and I think that's the key takeaway there. Certainly, uh, there are no shortage of, uh, for example, academics out there who are doing amazing forensic work trying to piece together all of these linkages. Uh, it's a question of having a policy process that mirrors, not only mirrors, but actually promotes uh, that type of forensic behavior. Yeah. So if we fast forward, uh, whatever it is, 13 years from the financial crisis, are, you know, are things better than they were in 2008, banks are clearly better capitalized than they were um, around then. And uh, central clearing has, has taken over in, certain, in large parts of the market. You know, I, I, have the risks yeah. been, you know, are they, are they being better managed these days than, than then? Or have we just shifted things around into new you know, dark areas of the market? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I do think that banks uh, generally are safer. Uh, I also think that things like uh, Central clearing for derivatives had made uh, have made the market uh, somewhat more transparent. Uh, I note, for instance, uh, that uh, the European Central Bank has recently uh, put out a call for researchers uh, to look at its treasure trove of data coming out of trade repositories, so we can get a better yeah. sense of what's happening uh, in those markets. If I was to identify a single place uh, in the global financial system uh, that worries me. It would be this uh, globulous network uh, that now exists around U.S. Treasury markets, where we yeah. have money market funds, hedge funds, the continued uh, uh, growth um, uh, of the repo market, all linked to the Treasury market hmm. and therefore linked to the policy decisions that the Federal Reserve uh, is making. Yeah. And that is a delicate, delicate issue, I think, at the moment. Uh, we saw uh, very recently with a mini taper tantrum in the Treasury market, we saw uh, the events uh, at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, with money market funds uh, and the Treasury market, uh, all suggesting that there's fragility here and that our existing policy stance has not um, effectively prevented that. 
and still requires Fed intervention to support ostensibly private markets. Yeah. Um, and that's problematic. Um, mm. Every time the Fed intervenes, that's only another signal uh, for these markets uh, to uh, grow bigger and potentially more fragile. Yeah. Uh, so that's where I would see the primary risks. Yeah. To what extent is the, the zero interest rate uh, lower bound a problem for policymakers? Yeah, well, it's a huge problem, I think, um, uh, for policymakers on the thin reg side of uh, central banking. Uh, I'll put aside the monetary policy issues. I think those are fairly well uh, understood at this point. Uh, but the you know zero interest rate environments do funny things to private sector institutions. Um, most importantly, um, uh, they make debt financing relatively straightforward on the liability side of their balance sheets. But it also means due to the compression of credit spreads elsewhere in the economy as a result, that they're often, you know, searching for yield, uh, taking yeah. on more risk uh, than they otherwise would. That may not be uh, the juice may not be worth the squeeze ultimately. So when you combine yeah. debt with um, a, a thirst to search for yield, uh, you start to worry about, at the very least, micro prudential stability of the institutions that are um, uh, engaging in these types of uh, trades. And then uh, more broadly, if enough of these institutions or if they're sufficiently large are engaging in this type of risky carry trade, um, you worry about the stability of the system as well. Yeah. So if you had to talk, you know, if you had to highlight the, the major current weak points in the financial systems plumbing, you'd, you'd focus on, you know, those areas you mentioned, like repo markets, um, government bonds um, and, 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 and those types of um, financial contracts. Yeah, and the sort of ecosystem that is built up around them uh, yeah. in terms of uh, investment funds in particular that are using leveraged strategies uh, within these markets. Yeah, um, That's the ecosystem that I think from a systemic pr perspective concerns me the most right now. Yeah. Um, my answer would be different from an investor protection perspective where I am worried about uh, stable coins. I am worried about uh, crypto in general, uh, probably more so. Uh, just given the incredible inflows uh, into that area in the, the last year or two. Yeah, let's talk a bit about crypto because obviously it's uh, stable coins have had a you know, massive increase in in uh, in, in, in issuance uh, in popularity over the last couple of years. Uh, they've they've kind of started their own financial system in a way with uh, their own interest rates and uh, deposit rates, borrowing rates. You know what, what what's what's the right regulatory framework for that part of the market if, if you know if there can be one. Sure. So I'd probably subdivide the market up into different parts, uh, to be honest. So we have the uh, what we might think of as the, the naked crypto plays. So Bitcoin being the obvious example there. Um, being a bit of a philosopher for a moment, I'm a bit skeptical about treating Bitcoin as finance uh, at all. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think it's more uh, a casino and uh uh, I hesitate uh, to put financial regulatory type solutions over top of uh, casinos. Um, and so with them, I'm, you know, I, I'm actually not dissatisfied with the way that we've been going. I think the CFTC and SEC have uh, started uh, to enforce their existing jurisdictions in ways that actually make perfect sense to me. Uh, yep. That is to say that uh, in the event that they are securities or commodities, uh, subjecting them to the same uh, regulatory frameworks as securities or commodities. Hmm. 
The second category are uh, digitally autonomous organizations that are operating as investment funds. Hmm. Uh, here, uh, I think uh, we haven't yet seen the type of enforcement activity that I would like um, uh, in this realm. And troublingly, we've seen some proposals put to Congress that would exempt these institutions ostensibly because they're decentralized from yep. the core investor protections of the Investment Company Act in the United States, for example. Yeah. Um, and that I do find uh, somewhat more troubling. Uh, the idea that there's a thing out there that makes automated investments uh, is hardly a new idea, uh, but somebody built the automation uh, and somebody retains residual discretion to fix it, uh, to update yeah. it, uh, to do all of these things. Uh, and I think those folks uh, know full well that those type of decisions can have a negative impact on investors and therefore they are functioning uh, like investment managers and advisors and should be regulated as such. So you can't just argue that you're decentralized and get away from the fiduciary responsibilities that you would have if you were running a mutual fund? Yeah, as somebody who started his life uh, in financial technology uh, in the 1990s, long before we had the term fintech, uh, the idea that I could write some self-executing computer code uh, that makes investment decisions or enables my investors to vote on what decisions to make uh, seems uh, chucklesome, uh, shall we say. Decentralization to me is irrelevant to the question of how these things should be regulated. Yeah. I, and then I should say the last category would be stable coins, which we've yeah. already touched upon. Uh, yeah. Uh, where I think uh, what we should be thinking of, the, the, the frameworks we should be thinking of here are in terms of payments. Yeah. So to me, the big issues are first and foremost the safety of uh, these claims. Where I do think the President's Working Group report uh, does um, uh, meaningfully address that issue. Yeah. But I think we should also be thinking about um, uh, competition uh, and its uh, desirable offshoot innovation uh, and interoperability. Um, uh, you want payment systems to expand to reach the farthest possible network of buyers and sellers. Yeah. And there, I think we have a long way to go, uh, both from a regulatory and technology perspective. Uh, to perform the functions uh, that we want these systems to perform. Yeah. I mean, a number of commentators have made the argument that with stablecoins, we're recreating the wildcat banking era where you've got many different people's versions of a dollar and they, they might all be trading yeah. at slightly different values. And, 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 uh, and therefore, you, you, know, you suddenly go from a single currency area to a very you know, much more complex system with uh, you know, the need to trans to compare and contrast things and switch between them. Is that, is that how you see things? Yeah, I think I was the first person to make that analogy, uh, to be honest. Um, uh, the, uh, I think the clear implication there, you can see it every day on uh, the, uh, the, the various crypto trading platforms, right? Yeah. If you look at the prices of uh, Tether or uh, Binance's coin, yeah. uh, they do fluctuate you know, basis points around par uh, yeah. all the time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that, uh, to me, is somewhat problematic. It does uh, uh, make me think of things like Thompson's Banknote Reporter from, you know, the Wildcat era. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, that I agree with critics of that view that pointing that out is not to say that that's what makes any of this unstable or that that's what makes uh, or what made uh, Wildcat banking uh, unstable. There's sort of an overuse of history there that I do think is uh, problematic. 
Yeah. But nevertheless, there are information costs uh, and potential consumer and investor protection problems associated with money that's supposed to be linked to another type of money, but in effect manifests um, uh, a non-trivial degree of basis risk uh, on a daily basis, right? It, it's not, uh, to put it in investment fund terms, tracking yeah. perfectly. Uh, and that, to me, is um, uh, problematic. So I, I agree so, with. So it's not. So it's not the fact that the, that the competition in itself is not a problem. It's the fact that they're kind of piggybacking off the the the, the role of the of the dollar, the the, the, the federal uh, yeah, so currency. To my mind, and I'm writing a book about this uh, at the moment. Uh, to my mind, there's a clear path that uh, leverages the comparative advantages of both the public and private sector. The reason that I want stablecoin uh, funds placed in a reserve account is that the Federal Reserve is really good at money, right? Mm. We believe that the Federal Reserve is going to honor its monetary commitments. Um, mm. uh, and by putting the money uh, in a reserve account, we're effectively eliminating the credit risk associated with money. Mm. The Federal Reserve is really bad at payments. Um, mm. But what we've seen in the market over the last 20 years is a private sector that is incredibly good at payments. Yeah. And so by enabling then the private sector to leverage new technology, to develop new technology, uh, to innovate around the payment portion, while making their liabilities, their monetary liabilities, the functional equivalent of bank deposits, uh, we could end up with a better, more innovative, uh, more vibrant and more resilient payment system. So, so you think it's a good idea to uh, unbundle banking payments and, and money? Yeah, and that's really um, uh, uh, my answer to the last question was really my unbundling thesis that yeah. we actually have something to gain by taking uh, payments out of banks, uh, but by making the money that exists for these payment systems outside banks functionally equivalent to bank deposits. There's uh, gains there to be had in terms of uh, financial innovation, uh, in terms of uh, consumer welfare in, to, in terms of financial inclusion that we're risking leaving on the table by continually doubling down on um, uh, asking banks, conventional banks, and the Federal Reserve System uh, to be the overseers of the payment system. Yeah. Can I ask you your thoughts about the you know other parts of the world because you've talked about the dollar system for, for sure. most of the chat so far you know what about uh, China what about Europe I and mean, it's very noticeable that China never allowed a yuan stablecoin to develop and they're moving full steam ahead with their state uh, digital currency and, and, and in Europe as well there's a you know, initiative by the European Central Bank for a digital euro and uh, yeah. what's how would you compare and contrast approaches around the world and where do you think you know who's who's taking the correct approach, if I can put it that way? Well, to be perfectly blunt, I think anybody who's taking the central bank digital currency approach is doing it wrong. Right. Um, uh, we can debate uh, different types of CBDC uh, frameworks. Uh, yeah. And if we're going to have a CBDC, I definitely have a view on which type of one we should adopt. Uh, but in general, there's no real clear case for why we should have central bank digital currencies other than attempting to crowd out uh, the growing stablecoin market. Hmm. Um, and uh, so that that's number one. Uh, number two, I think that we have to divide up the world. Uh, I think it's a great question to do this comparatively. Uh, one of the things that I... Uh, as a Canadian who uh, spent 11 years uh, working in the UK, uh, is that we don't do enough 
comparative work in this field to understand who's doing it better than we are and what we can learn from them. Uh, what we can learn from the UK, I think, is that it is perfectly feasible and desirable uh, to have non-banks connected to the payment system directly, yeah. um, provided that uh, the architecture is set up to make sure that the money is secure, that they have the technological and cybersecurity ability to protect uh, their customers' information. Yeah. Uh, so the UK has done, I think, extraordinarily well uh, in that regard. Yeah. Uh, more broadly in Europe, when you look across uh, the various different iterations of the regulation there, uh, I think, one, you can applaud uh, the European Parliament's uh, Commission and Central Bank for at least acknowledging that banks are not the only source of money and that the legal frameworks for non-banks um, uh, can be uh, rendered just as effective uh, as banks uh, if thoughtfully done. Now, I wouldn't say that they've uh, mastered the technicalities of the regulation, but if you note the number of new fintech startups and ventures across Europe uh, that have entered this space, um, some of which will, uh, I, I suspect, bring exciting products to market, they've done a good job of promoting innovation in that space, which I would note is exactly the opposite of the usual narrative, right? Uh, the EU is normally overly prescriptive and kills innovation through regulation. In the United States, is not very prescriptive and you get more innovation. Well, mm. when it comes to non-bank money, the opposite uh, is really true. Mm. And then China is a uh, somewhat sui generis case, I think. Uh, on the one hand, uh, uh, their moves uh, around uh, Alipay and WeChat Pay uh, acknowledge uh uh, one of the things that I think is important here is that central bank money is the best money. Um, and uh, if customer deposits, even if indirectly through these intermediaries, can be warehoused on a central bank balance sheet, uh, that eliminates the credit risk that necessitates a lot of the regulation that we have uh, designed to keep deposits uh, safe. Hmm. Uh, at the same time, uh, and uh, I think this is important for the rest of the world as well, although I think we might have a different take on this in Europe and North America uh, than uh, policymakers in China do, is that the real money in money is not the float anymore or shouldn't be the float anymore. That is investing the funds that you receive from customers, yeah. but in harvesting, analyzing, and uh, using the data uh, that comes along with access to payments. Yeah. So if I can see what you're doing, what payments you're making um, uh, and to whom, uh, yeah. I can glean a lot of information about you. Mm. And in China, uh, that's kind of the point. Right. Mm. Um, uh, not only uh, do these firms uh, get to get to generate revenue off of this, but that um, gleaning of information off payments data is also central to various initiatives that the Chinese government uh, is pursuing uh, in the social policy realm. Mm. Now, this is the point that becomes different, I think, between uh, Europe uh, and North America, where the ownership and use of customer data uh, is legally uh, quite uh, different uh, in Europe. And I think uh, in the United States, while the law hasn't really gotten there yet, uh, there's also some distaste for that level of um, uh, oversight yeah. and uh, informational access uh, yeah. that the Chinese system entails. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, given what you've been talking about, the 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 the, the rise of fintech, the, the the you know fintech's ability now to access uh, central bank payment systems in 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 some markets, um, I I wanted to ask you know uh, to return to the topic of the the last financial crisis and wonder you know maybe hypothesize about where the next one might come from because we've got. Uh, you know, near zero interest rates around the world. We've got central banks, uh, you know, in very accommodative mode. They've shown their willingness to continue quantitative easing programs, bail out money market funds when they get into trouble. You know, where could a crisis come from? Given that that, that, that we, you know, we we see this influx of money every time there's a even a hint of a problem. Uh, so I always uh, this this question always fills me with uh, trepidation uh, because on one level I know I'm going to be wrong, um, right? Uh, uh, I will play this back one day and be like, "Boy, did I ever miss that?" Uh, the one thing that I'm quasi certain about is that the combination of near zero interest rates, the restructuring of the financial system around near near zero interest rates. Uh, means that central bank policy surprises are likely to be the match that lights the fire. Yeah, um, and I think we see that in central bank policy in the United States in terms of uh, uh, Chairman Powell's uh, communication around this and the reluctance uh, to, um, uh, up until I guess yesterday, uh, to uh, reduce quantitative easing and, and to raise rates. Yeah. Uh, so I do see, uh, for example, um, uh, for your listeners' uh, edification, today is uh, Thursday, November the 4th, and you see uh, Governor Bailey at the Bank of England defy expectations today uh, in terms of uh, raising uh, rates. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were, everybody was expecting even a, yeah. a very small rate rise from 0.1 to a quarter or even a half, but yeah. he did nothing. And, and you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the Bank of England would move rates, you know, one or two percent up or down without telling anybody what they were doing. So it's uh, it's, it's quite a different world these days. And so you think it might go it might go wrong at some point, this uh, this attempt exactly. to manage expectations. Yeah. yeah. So the combination of zero rates uh, inducing leverage sort of bets on in particular government securities, but also um, yeah. uh, debt securities that, you know, the yield and creditworthiness are often linked it, through prices. Um, with a larger error than the one we saw today or a larger surprise yeah. than the one we saw today, uh, seems likely to me to be the thing that uh, sets the world on fire. Yeah. Uh, but how it sets the world on fire and who catches fire first and how the fire spreads mm. is really difficult to tell because there's so little um, transparency around how the world has reacted to zero interest rates. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the bits of the pre-crisis shadow banking system that were most shadowy, uh, repo, um, mm. uh, private um, funds, hedge funds that were investing uh, using leverage uh, in uh, credit markets, treasury markets, mm. all of these things, while some of them have to provide more information to regulators from the perspective of the size and structure uh, and balance sheet risks of the system, are still pretty opaque to most yeah. of us who try to follow these things. Yeah. Um, but they're as all we, really as, we, as we saw with the Credit Suisse uh, Archigos uh, problems yeah. earlier this year, when you know they each or each of the private prime brokers individually thought they had uh, the yeah. collateral owed to them by the hedge fund, and then it turned out the hedge fund had promised the same collateral to the you know ten of them. Uh, 
So uh, yeah, and it, it does also show sort of the limits of the post-crisis push towards market transparency, where yeah. uh, we still bifurcated the system between lit and dark. Yeah, uh, and given their choice, market participants are going to go dark. Uh, and when they go dark, these sort of fragmented mirrors, these sort of shattered glass structures within the financial system uh, mm -hmm. become very difficult to piece together in a way that enables us to see the uh, the bigger picture and the resulting uh, macroprudential risks. Yeah. And do you agree with the comment from the deputy governor of the Bank of England a few weeks ago that cryptocurrency now represents a systemic risk? I don't. Uh, mm. uh, I think that it might uh, one day do so. Uh, mm. But I concede that this is another area where I don't have a lot of information. Yeah. Uh, if uh, we have institutional investors who are taking leveraged bets on Bitcoin, uh, then there's a concern, uh, mm. certainly. But I haven't seen enough data uh, to suggest to me that that's reached a uh, scale or size yeah. that would uh, pose systemic risk. Dan, thank you very much for taking the time to chat to me. It's been a very, uh, very interesting chat and I look forward to following your work in future. No, it was my pleasure. Uh, this was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.